Please open in your Old Testament to the book of Leviticus, chapter 20, verse 24. Leviticus is at the very beginning of the Bible. It's the third book in the Bible, so if you start on the left, you'll soon come across the book of Leviticus. I think Leviticus has gotten a bad rap over the years. Most of us do not read Leviticus or Numbers for that matter. We think it's a dull book. And yet, let me suggest to you that there's so much biblical insight, so much God's truth in these two books, it would do us well to spend time reading and studying it. I must admit it is not as exciting as, for example, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, But it is a part of the Bible, and there's so much for us to learn from there as well. So this morning we're taking a look at one particular verse in the book of Leviticus, chapter 20, verse 24. And what you'll notice there, as we open to this Old Testament book, is that we find the people of God being given quite a promise that God will take them to a land which flows with milk and honey. It's an interesting expression, isn't it? Milk and honey. Sounds a little sticky, a little messy. Yeah. But there's a reason why God calls it just that. But what we find out is that as they approach this promised land, they are tested. And what happens is that they begin to doubt God. Fear overwhelms them. And because of the fear, they are unable to do what God requires of them. Because of fear, they are afraid to actually trust in God. Take a look there at Leviticus chapter 20, verse 24. Here you see the promise of God. It's very clear. It reads this way. But I have said to you, You shall inherit the land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. Now, in just these two sentences, there's quite a bit that can be said. You'll notice there that there's a promise. You will inherit the land. And we also see where it's going to come from. It's going to come from the hand of God. In other words, it's not because you're such great warriors, you're going to conquer this land and take it. That was the method up until recent history. Well, actually, it's even modern history today. Look at what's happening in the Ukraine. You conquer the land and you take it. But notice here it says, I will give it to you. God will give you this land. And then he describes this land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. That's why you want to go. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And then he says, just in case they're wondering, how is all this going to happen? He says, I am the Lord your God. That's how it's going to happen. I'm going to make it happen. And then he adds, who has separated you from the peoples. In other words, I've taken you, just a regular common people, and I've made you my people. I've separated you from the rest of the world. Now, there's a reason why God does this. It's not because the Jewish people had any uh, particular specialty to their names. It's simply because it would be from this Jewish nation that would come the Savior, Jesus Christ. He had to come from someone, from somewhere. God chose the Jewish nation to be the source from which Jesus Christ would come. 
and he would come through particularly, specifically the Jewish people, but he would come for the entire world. And Jesus Christ was truly a Jew, a Jew of Jews. And yet he's a savior of all who would come to him no matter what your nationality is. You know, I'm always enthused when I look at at the end of the month at how many people actually listen to our sermons here uh, at at Hope Church. And um, on sermon audio, it just goes out across the world. And I'm always amazed to see all the nations around the world that listen to what you're hearing this morning. People around the world are looking for hope. They're listening to the gospel message. And my voice is just one of, I think, two million on that app. And people are listening and listening and listening, looking for hope around the world, looking for the Messiah, looking for the Christ, looking for the Savior. And they're listening. Of course, in the United States, it's even more people listening to the English sermons. Well, here it is. This is the Jewish nation being called out, being separated. Today, maybe you know that Israel is about the size of New Jersey. Not much different in terms of acreage. With 9.2 million people living in Israel, that's about half a million people less, or rather more, than in New Jersey. They have about half a million people more than what we have here in New Jersey. And New Jersey is very populated, pretty dense. And so Israel, a little bit more so. And yet, this little nation, the size of New Jersey, has impacted the world, beginning here with the Old Testament and over all of the centuries, all of the world, the Jewish people have impacted world history. It's amazing. New Jerseyans haven't had such a big impact in world history as the Jewish nation has. Of the 930 People who have received Nobel Prizes, 208 of them are Jewish. That's pretty significant. It's very significant. Only 0.2% of the world population, and yet so much, so much history, so much current news happens around the Jewish people. It's amazing. And it's all because of what we read here in Leviticus chapter 20, that God separated them for himself. God took them and made them his people from which would come the Savior. And this promise was made to them, but it was also a promise initially made to their forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here God is just simply uh, reiterating what he had told them already many years earlier. They're going to now replace the people that live in that part of the land, a pagan people called the Canaanites. They're going to be conquered and removed, and the Jewish people will take hold of the land. Why? Because God said so. Does this sound fair? Well, when you consider that the Canaanites were deeply pagan people, harsh, wrath, wrathful people, the people who not only despised God, but the people who did literally as they wanted to. Keep in mind that God had been patient with them for many, 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 many years. And now the patience of God comes to an end, and he's going to take that territory and give it to the Jewish nation. It's going to be theirs. It's called the promised land as a result. 
God said, I've separated you to myself, and therefore what I'm going to do is I'm going to differentiate you from everybody else. I'm going to bless you in very specific ways, but I also want you to be different. And so I'm going to give you different laws, different ways of life. And I want you to be very careful to follow these laws that nobody else has. And you may not even understand why I'm doing this, but I just want you to know this. I want you to be different than all the rest of the world. And so they were to guard this calling very carefully. And as a result, God is going to give them this land flowing with milk and honey. Why milk and honey? Well, milk referring to all the essentials of life. God is going to give to them everything that they need. Milk, the essentials. And God is going to give them all the honey or all the delights of life as well. God is going to bless them with the pleasures of life. He's going to give them everything they need and all those things that bring daily pleasure. That makes you want to get out of bed and say, yes, I can't wait for another day. I'm going to give you the delights that my people will want, will need for day-to-day living. So having looked there at Leviticus chapter 20, turn back over to what we read earlier in Numbers 14. Numbers 14. When faced with the daunting challenge now of actually entering into that promised land, we wonder, will the people remember God's promises? Will the people trust in God? Or will they be afraid? Well, you know the answer because we just read it a few minutes ago. You see that they become very faithless. And as a result of their faithlessness, they rebel against God. And I point this out not just because it's historical fact, but because I want you to see how we tend to do the same thing. How easy it is for us to question God, doubt God, wonder about God, lose our trust in God, and what do we do then? We replace our ways with God's ways, all because we are afraid of doing what God would want us to do. We rebel against Him. I suppose it would help us to understand a little geographical and historical uh, facts in understanding Numbers chapter 14. The people of Israel have been uh, in the desert for about 40 years, wandering. What should have taken just a matter of days from Egypt to the Promised Land turns out to be four decades of wandering in the wilderness simply because they stopped trusting in God. And then God would win their trust again, and then they would forget God, and well, it kept going in cycles. And here they are in the region of Kadesh, a desert, a barren land, about 60 miles south of the Dead Sea. But they are at the very doors of the promised land. They're about to go in. And that's when they decide, well, before we go in, let's send in ten spies to see what the land is like, to see how we can come in and conquer. What do we need to do? What are we facing? And so they send the ten spies in, ten elite force men who spy out the land for 40 days. You see all this in chapter 13 of Numbers. And among the ten were two, two whose names you probably recognize, Joshua and Caleb. 
And when the 40 days expired and the 10 came back, they met where they were supposed to meet and they made their way back into the people of Israel. They gave their report. And Joshua and Caleb agreed with the other eight. They agreed that the land was great. Indeed, it does flow with milk and honey. It's a beautiful land, lush land. But they also agreed that the enemy was very formidable. This is not going to be easy, humanly speaking. But what they did not say, and the other eight did say, is that we can't do it. The other eight said, oh no, there's no way we're ever going to conquer this land. Joshua and Caleb said, oh no, uh, we believe in God. And God said we will, therefore we need to. God said we will be victorious. And so Joshua and Caleb, they give this report. Oh, it's true. They're fearsome warriors. Oh, it's true. I don't know how we're going to do it. Oh, it's true. This is going to be hard. But this is also true. God said he would give us the land. God said we will be victorious. And so Joshua and Caleb said, we trust God. Now, what's amazing, if you look at chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, you see that the negative report of the other eight, it just spreads to the entire population. The positive report by uh, Joshua and Caleb, they forgot it. Uh, Nobody even thought about it. Uh, If you go back to chapter 13, verse 30, essentially Joshua and Caleb said, we could certainly do this. But everybody else said, oh, no, we cannot. And before you know it, the whole population of the Jewish nation believed the negative report. Joshua and Caleb remembered what God had said. They remembered what God had done in the past. And so when they looked at that wall and they said, well, that's a pretty high wall. I don't know how we're going to do this. But then the other said, well, God does. We will be able to do it because God said we can. When they looked at these very strong men, they said, whoa, these are fearsome warriors. The other said, yeah, but remember, God said we are going to take this city. This is the land he's promised to us. We can do it. We certainly can. But none of the people remembered what God had said, what God had done. In fact, if you go back to chapter 13, verse 23, the people looked at, uh, at the reports, they heard the reports of how lush the land was, and that they had these great clusters of grapes. Uh, agriculturally, it was a very, well, a land flowing with milk and honey. They said, well, look at those grapes. If those grapes are so huge, imagine how big their warriors are. So instead of thanking God, they feared God's plan. No one talked about God's grace. No one recalled God's miracles. Nobody said, you know, I do remember that time when God caused the rushing waters and the Red Sea to part and we crossed the the, the dry ground. Nobody mentioned that. They forgot. No one spoke of how God's glory would descend on the temple of meeting. God would make his presence known in this cloud-like figure. Nobody spoke about how God led them by night with a fire in the sky that was like a lantern for them, or by day as a cloud. Everybody forgot the things God did in the past. Isn't it easy to forget what God's done for you in the past? Sometimes God is so common 
in our lives. God is so good to us from day to day that we forget that it was actually God who was ministering to us, God who was working in our lives, God who was giving to us. We forget that this was God's hand. We take it for granted. And when we take God's hand for granted, we don't trust in God for tomorrow. That's exactly what they're doing here. Not even their clothes wore out because God provided. God gave to them food every morning, something called manna from the sky. They ate every morning. They ate every evening. But they forgot that this was the hand of God. And notice how they become overcome with fear. Notice here the pervasive nature of fear. Fear is very invasive. It just takes over you. And then it takes over those around you. And before you know it, it just spreads to everyone around you. Look at verse 1. It says, all the people of the community cried out. Verse 2, all the Israelites grumbled. Again, verse 2, the whole assembly said. You notice there, all, all, all. It just spread. The fear, the grumbling, the discontentment. And I would imagine that this is a general statement. That there must have been some exceptions within the camp. Certainly Joshua and Caleb were not part of that all. Neither was Moses or Aaron. I like to think that their wives were with them as well. Maybe there were others, but the truth is, is that the bulk, the majority, the vast majority of the nation was grumbling and angry. This is what you want us to do, God? Are you crazy? Us? This is the land we're going to conquer? You know what? Well, take a look here and see how they respond to the plan of God. They did not want to doubt God. You know, they did not get up in the morning and say, you know, today sounds like a good day to just question God. I'm going to doubt God today. No, it was just the circumstances of life trickled in or sometimes inundated them. And the result was that they began to doubt God, stop trusting God. And when you stop trusting God, this is what naturally occurs. You begin to rebel against God. Don't trust God. You're not going to stay neutral then. You're going to rebel against God. If you're not trusting the Lord, you're going to start moving away from the Lord, and we call that a rebellion against God. In fact, they even wanted to go back to Egypt and become slaves in Egypt. That's how afraid they were. That's how rebellious they became. Not only is fear invasive, but unchecked fear is also self-propelling. It just keeps moving forward. It's hard to stop it. It just continuously grows. You know, and then it wears you out with panic. Yeah, you've been there. I would imagine so. If you haven't, it's probably coming. Just abounding fear. And some things are very frightening and others are not. But that's not the question. The question is, how are we responding? Is that fear invading my life? Is that fear just propelling itself and making me do, think, say things I ought not to? You know, it would have been the right time for Moses to get up at this point and say, 
there's nothing to fear but fear itself. But that comment would be said by somebody else many years later. And before you know it, just because of eight men, eight negative men with their poor reports, faithless men, this fear invaded the whole camp. And we're talking over 300,000 people. Now, some people would estimate even 2 million. I don't know that that's how many people we're talking here. And by my calculations, we're talking about over 300,000 now. And they were not just afraid. They were enraged. Go back to verse 1. Look at what it says there. We're told there that they raised their voices and they wept aloud. Now, crying here, their crying, is not this passive whimpering. It's not a quivering in a corner. You know, we Americans, when we cry, it's very personal and very private. We do our best to cover our crying. Even at a funeral, right? Oh, no, I'm not crying. Oh, sure you are. But we, we go out of our way to grab a tissue and, and, and look like we're not crying. I don't understand that about our culture, but that's how we are. We don't like to be seen crying. And will somebody will say, so are you okay? Oh, no, I'm, uh, I'm okay. No, you're not. It's obvious that you're not. But we are convinced that we need to tell people that we are, even when we're not. Well, here they are outraged. And by outrage, I mean the worst of rage. I want you here to picture the people screaming, people throwing things, cursing in anger. There's this intoxication with grief. Uh, this is the kind of mentality that starts riots. That's what's happening here. In fact, if you read verse 10, that's exactly what was about to happen. They were about to stone uh, Joshua and Caleb. That's how angry they are. And who are they angry at? Joshua and Caleb? No, they're angry at God. But Joshua and Caleb represent God. And so they're going to take it out on these two men. After all, you can't throw a rock at God, can you? I like what Sir Francis Bacon said. He says, nothing is as terrible as fear itself. I'm not so sure that's completely true. I, think, I can think of worse things, more terrible things. But fear is terrible. Unwarranted fear is terrible. And verses 3 and 4 describe for us what the people want. And it describes for us their desire. They desire that their families would be free of any, of any challenge, of any threat whatsoever. And that's only natural, right? Don't we want that for ourselves, for our loved ones? And verse 3 tells us that they feared for their families. They feared that their wives would be taken away by foreign men. That's what would happen. The men would go out to fight and their women would be left as widows, and then this invading army would come and take them away as part of their hound. They were afraid that their children would be taken and made into slaves. They were so afraid that they wanted to go back to Egypt knowing what horrendous lives the generations before had endured in Egypt, knowing that they would once again be enslaved when they got to Egypt. They were so afraid of going forward with what God had planned for them. They were so afraid that they believed that slavery was better. 
they knew that as soon as they got into Egypt, Pharaoh would take them and put them in chains again. And they said, well, at least that's familiar to us. But we don't want to go forward because we don't trust God's plan. When fear overcomes us, the natural reaction is for us to ignore, ignore Christ and rebel against him. It's very natural. I would assume you've been there at one point in your life where you had that option. Will I trust God or will I not? This is what God would have of me, but I'm not so sure I I can do that. I'm not so sure I want to do that. I'm not so sure it's a good idea. Lord, I'm afraid of your plan. I have an alternate. And so let's go with my plan. Let's go with my ideas. Let's go with my way of thinking because God, you really look outdated right now. You're asking too much from me. Notice what they do. Verse 3. They certainly do rebel against God. They say, why is the Lord bringing us to the land only to let us fall by the sword here? (laughs) Why are you doing this to us, God? You could have just killed us over there. And so they begin to question God's motives. They certainly doubted his promises. They forgot his providence. They rejected his grace. They doubted the goodness and the power of God. Does this resonate with you at any point in your life? That you've questioned God to this degree? Lord, certainly that's not what you're saying. Because the world is saying quite the opposite. Maybe you should check your book, Lord, because everybody else is saying quite the opposite. And you expect me to go with what you're saying? And fear sets in. We're afraid to go against the world. We're afraid of going in the line of Christ. Look at verse 4. And then they desire to replace God's plans with their own. First they question God's motives. Now they try to plan around God. They say, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Let's give Moses the boot. Let's find a new leader, one who will take us directly back to Egypt. It's just days away. It doesn't matter what God wants. What matters is what we want. And we do not want to enter or fight for the promised land. We don't want to face the daunting foe. In fact, they prefer to die than to trust in God. That's rather extreme, but not uncommon. I'd rather die than trust in God. Look at what we read there in verse 2. If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. And I mention all this this morning, again, not only because it's in the text, we should be familiar with it, but I mention it because God's people today, His church, are still prone to grumble and to quarrel at any hint of disappointment even in the light of God's magnificent evidence of power and presence. We grumble, we quarrel, sometimes with God, sometimes with each other, because we do not trust God's providence. We do not trust his plan, his care, his power. And it is only human to 
initially react in fear. When something severe comes our way, something we did not expect, suddenly it happens. It is only human to respond in fear. But the question is, what will you do next? What will you do next? Will you stop and turn to God and say, Lord, I don't like this, but I will trust in you. What will you have me do? What do you want me to do, Lord, in light of all this? Keeping in mind that it's never wise to ask, why God? It's a question people ask much too often. Have you noticed you rarely, if ever, get an answer? Why God? Or worse yet, why me, God? You know, when you say, why me, you're saying it should have happened to him or to her, but not me. Why God? God seldom answers that question. What he, he wants you to ask is, what next, God? What should I do next? What will you have me do? Keep in mind that it's never good, it's never right or faithful to respond in anger to God. Or in doubt of God. It will only work against you. You know, anger is not necessarily wrong. But to respond in anger towards God is. Anger can actually be a good thing. We should hate certain things that make us angry. Anything evil should make us angry. If we love, we're going to truly hate. If we truly love, we will truly hate anything that opposes what we love. And when that hate sets in, anger does as well. But Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26 says, In your anger do not sin. So it's possible to be angry and not sinful. But it is difficult. In your anger do not sin. Do not, do not let the sun set while you're still angry. In other words, take care of it before the day's end. We have no reason to be angry at God. Because God does no wrong. God will never wrong you. You have no reason to be angry at him. Have you lost a loved one recently and you're angry at God? Have you lost your job? Have you lost your health? Have your plans not gone the way you expected? And now you look and say, yes, I, I take some of the blame, but really, at the end of the day, Lord God, you could have changed it, and you didn't. And in the recesses of your heart, you're angry, and your anger is at God. Let me remind you, God will never wrong you. Amen. He doesn't. He can't. He is a good God. He is good to his own. Notice here, beginning at verse 5, that the faithful trust in God. Um, unfaithfulness always goes hand in hand with rebellion, but I want you to see here that faithfulness and trust always go hand in hand as well. And that's what we see beginning at verse 5. There's, there's a, a considerable contrast between the faithful and the faithless in this portion of the Old Testament. Again, verse 3, you see the faithless. What did they do? They mourned, they grumbled, and they were angry at God. Verse 5, you see the faithful. The faithful mourned, yes, they cried, and they tore their clothes because of the loss of faith 
of the people of God because hope among God's people had died out. And so what do they do? They ripped their clothes. Again, we don't express ourselves in mourning. We shy away when somebody sees us cry. We turn away. But in that culture, what you would do is you would actually, if you were in real mourning, you would rip your clothes. And so somebody walking down the street with ripped clothes and red eyes, you know, that person's in mourning. And if that wasn't expressive enough, they would shave their heads. And now you know they were mourning. And if that wasn't expressive enough, they would put ashes on their head. And you then would get the hint, oh, something bad happened in that man's life. Here they rip their clothes. We wouldn't even dare think of doing something like that, would we? Rip my clothes. You know how much I paid for this? <laughs> when dealing with faithlessness, there are two directions we need to look. And this is what we see here. As we come to our final points, I want you to see what, what Moses and Aaron do. Two directions we need to, to face when we are encountered with faithlessness, with people who are not trusting in God. Notice here verse 5. Moses and his brother Aaron spoke to God. They faced God. They understood that the greater offense was against God himself. These people questioned God. They doubted God. They rebelled against God. And so what did Moses and Aaron do? They pray. They fall prostrate before the assembly. In other words, they wanted everybody to see how they were feeling, that they were going to now come to God, repenting for these people. Like, I can't believe you're doing this to God, who is so good to you. They're face down on the ground. It's a posture of, uh, of submission. It's a posture saying, look how severe your actions are. Again, it's something we don't do, is it? It's a posture of worship. And they plead to God. Well, when we're faced with faithlessness, the first thing we do is we run to God in prayer. In humble, submissive prayer. Secondly, look at what Joshua and Caleb do. Again, they're in mourning, and so they tore their clothes, and then they addressed the people. They spoke to the people. Moses and Aaron spoke to God. Joshua and Caleb spoke to the people. And you'll notice here at verse 7 that they have reassured them. They said, yes, the land is very valuable. They said, the, the land is vast and good. In fact, they said, the land is able to support at least six nations. Chapter 13, verse 28. They said, yes, the land is large, but fortified and fortified cities. But as we saw earlier, verse 8 in, in Leviticus 20, the land is flowing with milk and honey. Milk and honey. In other words, everything you need in life will be provided for you, including the delights of life will be yours. Do you believe that about God in your own life, that God will provide for you the essentials. Now, when your bank account is full, that's easy to say, oh, yes, Lord, the Lord takes care of me. But how about if you're short on cash or you're short on respect? People don't respect you. 
or if you're short on days of life, or if you're short in strength or stamina, do you believe that the Lord will provide for you? It's these hours that will be very telling as to where you stand or how you see God. How do you respond? How do you react? Verse 8, it reads this way. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. My friends, let me remind you that faithfulness is not just obeying God. Faithfulness is trusting in God while I obey God. Most of us have had children that obey us, but you know their hearts are not there. I'll do it, but I don't want to. But they know what's best for them, not for you. And so they do it. God wants children who will obey and obey willingly, trusting, trust in him. That's true faithfulness. Notice here the character of these men, the, the, the character of Moses and Aaron. Uh, you notice here that they, they display a consecration to God. They are devoted to God. And, and so much so that they are overcome by the people's reaction. They're overcome by the rebellion of their very own neighbors. And they plead to God that God would change them. That God would cause them to repent. That God would be patient with them. Why? Because the offense against God to them was just something unbearable. I can't believe you're doing this. Joshua and Caleb, notice how they demonstrate their faith. They remind the entire encampment of how good God's been in the past. They say, look at the character of God. You have no reason to question him. I remember as a child, my parents taught me from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own, on your own understanding, but make your ways according to his. Acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. You're not going to be walking in a zigzag throughout life. The character of God, of course is never questionable. He's not an angry God. God doesn't sit there as an angry deity waiting to help, to zap you for whatever sin you commit. The judgment of God, my friends, please understand this, the judgment of God is uncommon. It is uncommon. What is common about God is his grace and mercy. God is a patient God. Now keep in mind, his patience is not unlimited. There are limits to his patience. But he is rich in mercy and grace. And so we've come full circle, the land of milk and honey. Andrew Wilson notes that God is rescuing his people into sweetness and abundance. Isn't that neat? That's what he does for you. He wants to rescue you so that you will be placed in a world and a life that's filled with sweetness and abundance. It's not, every, not that everything in life is going to be 
uh, gentle and, and sweet and kind. It means that God changes the vinegar into honey. You know, Israel was freed from a very physical captivity. But the church here, we have a far deeper truth. God frees us, not necessarily from a physical captivity, but he can do that too. But fortunately, we don't need that. He, he frees us from fear. God gives to us a freedom in Jesus Christ from his own judgment, from condemnation. God frees us so that we can have a life filled with purpose. A life that can escape the effects of rejection. You know, the last couple of weeks we were doing that seminar downstairs on distinctions. And I'm just amazed to see how, how rejection affects people to do the most adverse, perverse things. Just plain old rejection. Plain old rejection. Maybe from mom, maybe from dad, maybe from the kids in junior high. Whatever the case. God frees us from the effects of rejection. And Christ is able to take that adversarial, volatile situation in your life and turn it into milk and honey. Psalm 119 reads this way, Your words are sweeter than honey in my mouth. It all begins by consuming the word of God. The word of God is like a bowl of honey and you stick your hand in it and you put it to your mouth. That's when you begin to experience the sweetness of God. God promised that he would provide for you all the essentials, all your necessities, and all the pleasures that are warranted for a good life to anyone who would follow him. Listen, you cannot receive from God if you're walking in the opposite direction of God. You have to be walking alongside of him. You have to be walking in his direction. And the truth is, often, just as we see here in the book of Numbers, often God takes us through this desert experience before we get to the milk and honey. And maybe right now you're in that desert experience. But before you get to that milk and honey, you may very well be, just like the people of Israel, wandering in a barren land. But this barren land was not a surprise. God didn't say, oh, I didn't see that one coming. And neither are these desert experiences a surprise in your life. God knows what he's doing. And he's going to take that experience and he's going to take you to a place of milk and honey if you would only trust his ways. If you would only follow him, abide in him and he in you. And you will discover too, milk and honey. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful because you give to us all that we need. You provide for us the essentials and the delights of life. And for that we honor and thank you. Amen. Jesus Christ is indeed the means by which we find this true life. And I would invite you, if you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, to give your life to him even today and discover this new life, which leads to milk and honey, right?